Good day, my friends, and welcome to another Black History Moment with Bo. My friends, I told you from the onset of this show that I would only bring you the absolute truth. I also told you that this would not be a long show. This would be a show just long enough to carry you to work or carry you to the grocery store. Long enough to inspire you, to get you to talk about it. This is not a show for the gaining of my own notoriety. It is a show to spread our history. A history that has not been lost, merely set aside. A history that has not been taught in our schools. But we must enlighten ourselves. Who better to teach our history than us? And for your own gratification, I would like for you to fact check me. Better yet, have your children or your grandchildren fact check me. Because if you tell them, they forget. Teach them and they remember. But if you involve them, they learn. I hope your day is going just fabulous as we slip into darkness. On October the 4th, 1891, Reverend Daniel Sanders stepped to the pulpit at the Biddle University Chapel for his first sermon as Biddle's president. And it was a great day. Biddle was founded just after the Civil War, and it was to educate African Americans. Biddle University now is Johnson C. Smith University, my alumni. And it was and still is one of Charlotte's finest institutions. The Tower of Biddle Hall still stands above the city's western skyline. It was only two years after the end of the Civil War that Biddle first opened its doors. And at that time, all the school's teachers had been white. But times have changed. Sanders, who had been born a slave, was Biddle's first black president. And all but one of the professors in his audience were African Americans as well. The change had caused a little controversy in Charlotte because many white charlatans supported the idea of a school for African Americans. They weren't real keen about the school being run 
by African Americans. And what the Charlotte newspaper, The Observer, said was, it's not probable that the Negroes can successfully manage such an institute of learning. And after Sanders' appointment, all four of Biddle's white Southern trustees resigned, and Sanders had no trouble proving them wrong. You see, when he was born in 1847, laws forbid enslaved people to learn to read and write. So he learned to be a shoemaker at age nine and earned money for the man who claimed to own him until freedom came and he could strike out on his own. He was a smart man with one of those leadership personalities. He became an admired minister, an educator, as well as publisher to the African American Presbyterian newspaper. At the school, he worked to raise funds. He expanded courses often. The students called him Zeus. Amid the wreckage of the Civil War defeat, North Carolina had vowed to shape a new South based on commerce and industry. Residents of Charlotte liked the promise of the New South. They built rail lines, farm supply stores, banks, and a growing number of cotton mills, all which promoted commerce and grew the population of the city. In 1860, before the Civil War, Charlotte only had 2,265 residents. By 1900, it held 18,091 residents, second only to the port city of Wilmington. But just as in slavery, this new economy depended on African-American labor. So black charlatans did hard, dirty jobs that included washing clothes, scrubbing floors, digging ditches, making bricks, and loading and unloading 500-pound bales of cotton. Many were brutally exploited, but in the more fluid racial order of the post-Civil War, some found opportunity. And as George Jefferson might say, (laughs) some of our brothers found themselves moving on up. By the 1890s, Charlotte's growing middle black class practiced law and medicine, sold real estate and operated businesses that included drugstores, restaurants, barbershops, saloons, newspapers, a brick factory, and the National Publishing House of the A.M.E. Zion Church. Successful blacks started investing in fine homes and churches, often on the same streets as white homes and institutions. Now you know that's going to cause a problem with white folks. Don't mind you buying a house, just not in my neighborhood. But just as of today, female leaders step to the plate 
One of them was a school teacher by the name of Mary Lynch, who worked together with white women to promote community welfare and raise charitable funds, most notably for the Good Samaritan Hospital, which opened in the Third Ward in 1891. Black candidates regularly won election to Charlotte's Board of Aldermen and at one point held as many as three of the 12 seats, and this built confidence and optimism in our people. But these gains were far from secure. You see, from 1877 into the 1890s, North Carolina was run by the Democratic Party, the party which had plunged the South into the Civil War. Democratic legislators, most of which were well-off whites, used their power to favor commerce and industry and to restrict political participation to a wealthy few. By 1890, African Americans made up 35% of North Carolina's population, and they belonged to the Republican Party, the party of Abraham Lincoln. Both black and white Republicans championed measures that would shake up the state's social and economic hierarchy in part by expanding voting rights. The economic downturn at the start of 1890 was particularly hard on the state's small-scale white farmers, and they started to look for alternatives to the democratic rule. In 1894, these farmers joined with Republicans in a political alliance they called fusion. And fusionists won control of the state legislature in 1894 and elected Republican Daniel Russell as governor in 1896. Once in power, they passed laws that helped ordinary people. They capped interest rates, made it easier to vote, and increased funding for public schools. And you know what happened? Elite whites reacted with self-righteous outrage. White Democrats across the state began to search for an issue that would fuel their comeback. And naturally, they settled on white supremacy. White supremacy had a long history in North Carolina. They used that concept to justify taking the land from Native Americans. Then they made it the foundation of two centuries of race-based slavery. In 1898, elite whites turned the white supremacy to a new use, splitting the fusion coalition. They devised a carefully coordinated statewide campaign that revived and intensified old racial stereotypes. Articles, speeches, 
and ghoulish political cartoons portrayed the state's African Americans as foolish, dishonest, and dangerous. Dramatically, Democrats claimed that African American men who had been embodied by political power posed a threat to white women. Whoops, there it is. Once again, we're back to that insecurity between white men and their women that still some kind of way lingers on in the United States today. The year leading up to the election saw sensationalized coverage of a handful of alleged black-on-white rape cases, accusations that resulted in three lynchings and several public hangings. Maybe it's me, but uh, I really can't tell you the difference between a lynching and a hanging. I wish somebody would drop me an email and let me know. But anyway, campaigners urged rural whites to leave the Fusion Alliance and unite with Democrats to protect their wives and daughters. Proud Caucasians, one campaign song ran, must defend their women's spotless virtue with song and manly arms. Additional rhetoric denounced Negro rule and warned of the black domination. Many of the state's rising young political stars played key roles in the white supremacy campaign, which is what its leaders proudly called it. On election day, the prospect of violence kept African Americans and their remaining white allies from going to the polls. Democrats won by a landslide across the state. Once more, the white man's party will take possession of that which is its rights by every law of birth, intelligence, and principle, the Charlotte Observer reported. Three days later, on November 11, 1898, African Americans in Charlotte awoke to even more devastating news from Wilmington, then North Carolina's largest city. Eleven Negroes dead, the observer proclaimed, whites in control. Wilmington was a Republican stronghold with a Republican mayor and a number of black public officials and a large black voting population. But with the Democrats' sweeping statewide victory, Wilmington's old-line white elite staged an armed revolt. They rampaged through the city seeking out and murdering black leaders. Hundreds of African Americans fled into the swamps around the city. The insurgents then marched on City Hall where their leader, Alfred Moore Waddle, declared himself the new mayor. It was the first and only coup d'etat in American history. Elite whites wasted no time consolidating their power. In 1900, they persuaded voters to approve an amendment to the state's constitution 
that allowed the use of poll taxes and literacy tests to limit who could vote. They didn't have to mention race, but we knew who they were targeting. Local voter registrars were given the power of creating the literacy test and determining who had passed. They gave easy tests to the whites and near impossible ones to the blacks. These restrictions combined with their ongoing threat of violence proved devastatingly effective. By 1903, African Americans made up 39% of Charlotte's population, but only 2% of registered voters. To ensure their hold over the state, white leaders wove white supremacy into every aspect of daily life, building a system that became known as Jim Crow. New laws and regulations forced African Americans to drink from separate drinking fountains, live in separate neighborhoods, ride at the back of streetcars, and even use separate Bibles in courtrooms. In every case, facilities for African Americans were made deliberately and obviously inferior to those for whites. The rise of white supremacy also fueled the Lost Cause movement, which romanticized slavery and the Confederacy and wiped African American resistance out of the public view. At the dawn of the 20th century, North Carolina's African Americans faced hard choices. Many decided to abandon the South, joining the Northern Exodus that would become known as the Great Migration. U.S. Congressman George White bluntly stated his reason for departing. I can no longer live in North Carolina and be a man. There you have it, my friends. Once again, fact and truth. And we find that there are many cities like Greenwood, like Rosewood, that were built on our backs, but we were not allowed to eat a piece of that economic pie. Jealousy, the first cousin to hatred. Until next time, my friends, it has been my pleasure.